you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department. Just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Greg Henry, Rick Bucata, coming to you with the January 2015 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Hello, Gregory. Hello, Ricky. Can you believe it? We're now into 2015. We've been doing this now, bit by bit, piece by piece, for like nine or ten years. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I, I know. I know it is. Um, yeah. Especially because it's the same thing every month. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. We're bitching about the same things every month, but that's all right. Um in, in any event, uh, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where with the wind chill, it is right now about 15 below. Well, so you you have a guy come and, and shovel out your driveway and your sidewalk. I just had the guy come and cut our grass. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's the difference, I guess. Yeah, Gustavo and, just left. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say the difference is my shoveler speaks English, but go ahead. Hey, listen, I still have a frog in my throat uh, from the last, uh, it's been going on for about three weeks now, so I apologize for that. Yeah. I'm going to let Greg do all the talking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's going to happen. Uh, why don't we start out with some of our letters, Rick, and, uh, and see what uh, people have been saying uh, to us about what's going on. Go ahead, start. give us a letter. Well, before we get into this, for the specifics of one, I got to acknowledge that our friend, Amo Matu, basically said, I like it when you guys review articles from the current literature. And let me give you a few uh, suggestions of articles that you may want to consider. Well, Amo, we got a little surprise for you. It's coming up later in the show. But I, I wanted to create that ex suspense you know. I, 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 I'm with bated breath here, Rick. I can't wait to hear what it is. All right, let's get into a couple of our other uh, our, our emails here. Why don't you, you want to do uh, Dr. X here? Or Ooh, you want to do, do the resident? Or you, take whatever do, you want you want. I'll do the resident. You do Dr. X. Go ahead. Lead off with the Dr. X. Uh, well, X. obviously, Dr. X is not interested in his name being known because he's concerned about retaliation as uh, he is rightly uh, should be afraid of. This is about transfers. A hospital refused to accept a patient in transfer because the patient wasn't going to be transferred by ambulance. Does this sound familiar, Greg? Oh, my God. How many times have we played this tape? Go ahead. The patient vehemently refused to be transferred by ambulance, and the ED physician felt an ambulance was unnecessary. The receiving hospital said to discharge the patient AMA. I think this person had a compound fracture of the hand that was that they were started on some splinting and antibiotics and a dressing, and they were more than stable to go by car. And the fact of the matter is, is that somebody is going to pay for this $3,000 ride where they give you oxygen and a paper sheet to cover you uh, to take you to uh, down the street to the next hospital. And um, in any case... The, trans the receiving hospital said, send them, sign them out AMA. This place has, the, the sending hospital has what they call a transfer center. The transfer center refused to allow the transfer of a, oh, wait a minute. No, that might be a second case. No, That's I'm sorry. That's a second case, right? Yeah, okay. All right, I'm screwed up here. I'll stop right here. The idea is 
does this patient have to be sent by ambulance? Well, uh, let, we, we've commented on this many times, but just to make sure that Dr. X knows, you're not just getting a Henry opinion or a Bukata opinion here. We went right to the source of this. We went to our good friend, Robert Bitterman, MD, JD, BFD, who uh, this is what he does. He wrote the books. He did all the stuff. And Bob says, as we spoke to him, no, there's nothing in the law that says you have to transfer somebody by an ambulance. Because you don't have or need a higher standard of care, it doesn't mean that they're going to die on the trip from your place to the other place. It's like sends, sending somebody in with, a, with an eye injury. Um, if they can take them by car, uh, I'm sure that there's nothing that was going to happen in that ambulance that was going to be stopped by having uh, paramedics in attendance at that moment in time. Here, here's the final word for, for our listeners. They can go by whatever means is reasonable. In Michigan right now, it's dog sled. We send them by dog sled occasionally to the university hospital. It, it protects the tissue. It stays cool, all that sort of thing. But there's no reason that they have to go by ambulance. And, Rick, I think your point is well made. Ambulance trips aren't free. You take a an important piece of community equipment out of service during that period of time. If your community has one or two ambulances at that moment in time, why would you tie them up? Um, you know, last last week here in Michigan, we had a 193-car uh, pileup on the interstate during a whiteout and snowstorm. Uh, they were calling in ambulances from two states uh, to get this thing done. I think we need to be more protective of an important community resource. You know, it's very clear. And don't get, you know, screwed up by this. This is The Amtala does not require an ambulance, a period. Part two of his question here. His transfer center, whatever the heck that is, Refused to allow the, uh, to allow the transfer of a prisoner who had a very stable condition, minor orthopedic kind of thing, who was going to be sent to a nearby hospital by the policeman who brought him in in the first place. The policeman said, yeah, I'll take him down to the other uh, hospital. Their chief nursing officer said that since the patient was going to a higher level of care, this was an EMTALA transfer and as such required an ambulance. Again, same problem, same situation. The police have this guy in custody. It was a hand injury. Um, it didn't matter. It was close by. I mean, there has to be some reasonable standard here. And at least according to Bitterman and the people who do MTALA, um, the, the advice being given here by this transfer center and this uh, head nurse are, uh, quite frankly, wrong. Yeah, I think there's a lot of CYA here at somebody's expense because, uh, yeah, these uh, these ambulance transfer costs are enormous. The other thing that uh, the physician brought up is he was concerned about signing for the necessity that this patient be transferred by ambulance, given the fact that he didn't need an ambulance, and he said, I'm signing, and this is fraudulent. I'm going to tell 
Medicare or whoever's going to pay for this thing that this was medically necessary when, in fact, it was not. Yeah, probably who's going to pay for this if it's somebody in custody is uh, whoever has them in custody. If you're in a state prison in the state of Michigan, the state of Michigan pays for your health care. If you're in the county jail uh, here in Michigan, that particular county has to pay for your health care. Um, the most of the agencies, when you have serious medical problems, want to get you out as fast as they possibly can, so they're not stuck with the health care bill for uh, for various patients. There's uh, no question about it. Uh, by the way, the uh, police often do something too with their incarcerated patients, which is drop them off and then beat it out of there. Uh, because every time a deputy is staying there overtime, it's costing the county a lot of money to keep a uh, to keep those various deputies around the place. Uh, just understand the county has reasons why they don't want to overly protect uh, prisoners. Well, you know, I think that the deputies kind of like being in the ER. They're out of the cold where you are. They're getting a cup of coffee from the nurses. They get to, you know, socialize a bit. There's not anything of any consequence going on. They get, you know, four hours or five hours of overtime because it takes forever to get them out of your ER. Yeah, exactly. Listen, we have the best protected and defended coffee machine in America. If, 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 if. If the jihadists ever go after our coffee machine, good luck, because we have well-armed policemen circling it completely every hour of the day and night. Now, let me throw a curveball in here. Is the transfer of a stable patient an EMTALA transfer? No, it is not. As soon as the patient is stable, um, all the EMTALA stuff goes away. When we declare them stable, the problem is, when are you stable? And if you look at the case law, we have several uh, case laws uh, issues here, but one of them was a, an appendicitis case. And it became very clear in that case that the, that the law was going to consider an appendix is stabilized when? When you've delivered the appendix through the skin in some way, shape, or form. And the placenta? And the placenta. Uh, but I think that that's absolutely right, that you have to take when a stable point exists. But uh, clearly, somebody with a, uh, a hand injury, even an open hand injury, if it's been compressed and dressed and antibiosed and, and this, that, and another thing, that's a stable injury at that moment in time. Um, there's another part to this, uh, this letter, and, he, and uh, this is a good question. Uh, he says, as director of a community hospital, ED, he reviews cases uh, that have been provided by various elements of the hospital before they go to a quality assurance committee. His his uh, usual and custom has been to call in the doc and sit and discuss these cases. He wants to know, does he constitute a quality assurance program? Is that discussion protected? Um, and all I can say is the first thing you should do is pass something in the department that says when you sit with a patient, you declare it a quality assurance meeting. You sit with a doctor. Well, well when you sit with a doctor, you declare it a quality assurance meeting. Uh, now, that's not totally protective in every state. 
But in the vast majority of states, if you've declared it as a quality assurance conference or meeting, that is neither discoverable or admissible <clears throat> come the time of trial. So I, I think I think it's the attitude and the sort of the the preceding discussion that goes on. You tell the doctor that you're sitting with you are in a quality assurance meeting. You don't talk about this. You don't spread this. You don't comment on this. This is quality assurance. Well, you know the doctor who sent that question is is not Doctor X. That's Doctor Phil Hopkins. You sent yeah. that is, and I want to acknowledge and thank him for sending the question because it always comes up. You know, it really makes no sense, this ridiculous uh, mandate that you not talk to anybody about anything once it sounds like it may become a legal matter except in some kind of protected committee. You can't talk to your wife about it. You can't talk to your, you can't talk to anybody. And, um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. We understand where it comes from, but it's not very practical. Yeah, it, it, you, you, can't, you can't actually improve the quality of the care uh, unless you carry on some discussion, and hopefully the, uh, it will be protected. However, uh, there are certain states, including the state of Nevada, where all quality assurance activity um, is discoverable by the plaintiff. So you have to be extremely careful. I would, I would check with hospital counsel uh, as to what is discoverable and admissible in your particular uh, jurisdiction and, uh, and follow those rules. Can we do one more letter, Rick? Uh, please do. Ah, we've got someone who writes to us, and uh, I don't have necessarily permission for his name, but he says he's enjoyed our recent episodes He's a recent graduate of the residencies a year and a half ago, has been listening to this for guidance, sounds like an intelligent young, young man. And uh, what he's concerned about is how much do you discuss on the chart with regard to the differential diagnosis? Because here's his big worry. Does mentioning a term require you to work up the disease entity? i.e., you and I keep a certain number of working diagnoses in our head all the time, but we don't pursue them to their full extent. I mean, we may be thinking that someone may have, uh, it's somewhere on the list that they have uh, an aortic, uh, uh, thoracic aortic dissection. But we don't work up everybody with chest pain uh, for a thoracic aortic dissection. How do we note that on the chart? What do we say, and uh, is this obligating us to do more and more and more? Your thoughts, Rick? Well, this was uh, generated by the um, CMS mandates with regards to charting and getting paid for your charting, and part of medical decision-making requires that you um, put in there the diagnoses that you are considering, and there there is this uh, issue here about do we need to list all of the causes of abdominal pain? And if I list all of those causes of abdominal pain and I don't work them up, am I culpable uh, by doing that? So there is this um, tension between 
am I going to be able to ex- send an acceptable bill to Medicare because I've included in the medical decision-making the variety of diagnoses I'm considering? Or is that going to nail me because, in fact, I never did the, the complete evaluation of all of these kinds of things? So it, there is this uh, conflict, and um, many people basically say, no, I'm not listing a differential diagnosis of every abdominal pain patient, that it could be this, it could be that, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this, it could be that. You know, I could go to a textbook and come up with this list every time. So the fact of the matter is I'm not going to do that. Other people do say I'm going to put down uh, a differential uh, diagnosis, and I'm going to tell you why I believe this is the, the not not likely to be the person's problem. Certainly going to take a lot, take up a lot more time in the medical decision-making documentation pro, uh, part of the chart. So this is clearly has been a bone of contention for a long time since CMS came out back in 1995 with this idea that medical decision-making would require a listing of the differential that is being considered. The uh, <clears throat> the problem here is obvious. Uh, the number of diseases which sit in a textbook like Harrison's textbook of medicine, maybe 3,000 diseases. The actual working hypothesis of what you're really concerned about in front of you is actually a very limited number of things. Now, there is, it's perfectly reasonable to say, you know, grandma just got off the plane from India where she was being treated for her cancer and her broken leg and had the sudden onset of chest pain uh, and shortness of breath. Well, on a Bayesian analysis, it sounds to me like you better be looking for that PE at that moment in time. But do you have to look for every other disease in the world at that moment? And and I don't think the answer is yes. I mean, there is something called reasonableness, and uh, we have to get back to it. Uh, That, by the way, is usually not uh, the basis of most lawsuits that I see and follow. It's simple things. It's blocking and tackling. It's not, it's not uh, you know, you always think about, is there any type of weird thing you learned in med school that's going to save you? Like, I've never seen a lawsuit uh, uh, with uh, dealing with the fact that uh, you didn't know the, the three proteins, which are branch-chain amino acids. I never saw that. Well, there's uh, a now, Maybe it's out there. The conflict here is um, CMS charting for getting paid. And does that CMS charting basically get you into a me- potential medical legal box because of this issue about putting down a whole bunch of potential diagnoses for the patient that you're uh, having in front of you? Uh, obviously, we would prefer not to do that. Um, but CMS kind of suggests that we do want you to do that. So there is this tension between the two by the way i get 10 uh, i probably get 10 emails a week on people putting on courses on charting and how you how you uh, code your charts for maximum reimbursement rick have you ever seen the course put on uh for for trying to get minimal reimbursement you ever seen that course no actually I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up because in the pipeline in the pipeline, I've got two papers that um, I, I'm going to want to talk about, but not necessarily immediately. But one of them, in fact, we did it in the abstracts, uh, I think it was um, 
in December. And that looked at variation in charges in California emergency departments. This was done by uh, some folks up at UC San Francisco. And they looked at emergency department levels of service uh, one through five. And they looked at a whole bunch of hospitals in California and asked them, because they were, they're required to report these to the, to the state, what's your charges for a level one, two, three, four, five? And um, Greg, you'll be pleased to know that one hospital in California for a level four charge charges $275. Another hospital for a level four charge is six thousand six hundred and sixty-two dollars? <laughs> well, we're very we're very glad there's such consistency in in this the healthcare is just realm. <laughs> one more, you know, sign of the absurdity of our system. Total absurdity. Yeah. But in any case, variation in charges. That's there, and then there's another one that came up in PLOS Medicine. How much will I get charged for this? Patient charges for top 10 diagnoses in the, in the emergency department. And they basically do the same kind of thing, showing astronomical variation in charges for the top 10 diagnoses by hospital. It's just, it's just absurd. It makes, it, it makes us look like we're idiots. Yeah, by the way, whenever you ask a resident, what is this cost or that cost, or we're writing for a prescription, even for Tamiflu, and I say, what does it cost for them? They say, well, they got insurance. I said, somebody's paying for this. Tell me what it costs. Virtually none of them have any idea what any tests cost, what any study costs, what any x-ray costs, whatever any medication costs. We've kind of kept these people in the, in the total darkness as if Money didn't matter. It's irrelevant well, what I've these got, things... I, I've got a, re- a revelation for them. It matters. It's irrelevant what these things cost. What matters is the patient get the best care possible. Yeah, that's much yeah, What crap, crap that is. Unbelievable. By the way, um, uh, you know, our listeners, Rick, always like a little list of things to take home. And the other day, I was preparing a talk for a residency, <clears throat> and I said... I'm going to talk about practical things, which, which rather than uh, then, rather than the impractical things you normally talk about. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, very few of them actually want to hear another lecture on the posterior ventral nucleus of the thalamus. So I thought I would give them some suggestions. So I'm going to I'm going to start out this this month. I'll give five. I'll give five next month, and I'd like you to comment on this, Rick. See if these are true. First one. If you order out, whenever you order out for food from the emergency department, there's somebody who's observing the department under heavy lenses. There's a society out there which immediately has 12 people rush the door, uh, most of which are psych and unhappy, and you never actually get uh, cold or, or warm food. You know, you realize I'd stopped working in the ER for two years before I realized that pizza actually comes warm from the from the store it was an amazing it was amazing revelation now this is one of your your major truths it's a major truth that uh here's my when you order food the bad things happen bad things happen and uh so bring your own stuff bring your own food eat when you get a chance 
uh, because there's always usually a little break where you can eat. But uh, I always always troubles me when some guy says I've I, I've I've got to go up and and eat uh, or you know I get hypoglycemic. I do. I said, look, bring a sandwich with you. Do something. But uh, but we don't live a controlled life in the emergency department. Well, listen, uh, um, I tell you that the fact of the matter is is the doctors may not live a controlled life, but the nurses better uh, better live 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 a controlled life because um, I, I think I told you about uh, this. We had a nurse who worked only the night shift for decades. And this was when our hospital was very, very small. And we had one nurse who worked the nights. Uh, we that, That's it. Ultimately, we had many more than that. But during this period of time, we had one nurse who worked the nights. And after working there umpteen thousand years, she retired and sued the hospital because she never had the mandatory half-hour lunch that she's required to get in her eight-hour shift and her two 15-minute breaks. And basically, she got this whopping reward because nurses are are required to get their their breaks and their meals. Now, that doesn't apply to, you know, contract doctors like you and I did it, but... No. And, but it, frankly, it may apply. No, I'm sure it does apply to employed physicians. Now, as a tangent, as it, and this is a tangent. This is a genuine tangent. You know, I was one of the fuddy-duddy managers of the department who really did not like to see food out in the department. You know, the right. donuts, the, the coffee at most. But, you know, any eating of anything, or you could, or worse yet, you can smell the popcorn being popped in the, in the microwave, and the whole department now smells of popcorn. I think that patients watching you eat, we're in this fishbowl, that does not do a lot for our professionalism, our credibility when we're chomping on something uh, at, at the desk. If you want to eat, Go back into the doctor's sleep room and get something and eat back there or the nurse's lounge. But eating in front of the patients does not get you any points. By the way, I've heard that in deposition when people said they were mad at the outcome and said, well, the doctors and nurses were, were too busy eating. They were too busy. Having oh, yeah, a, absolutely. A I've heard the same thing. Yeah, yeah, they had a celebratory cake for somebody's birthday or something like that. Well, this they're not interested in somebody's birthday. I can tell you that that birthday cake needs to be in the in the <laughs> in the lounge. Right, I think that's true. Second point: I never woke up anybody with Narcan who I really liked. Now, the there's a point here uh, with the. <laughs> well, yeah, with what the, is the point? <laughs> the point is very clear. Uh, with the, with the rise in morphine uh, and and uh, heroin and all any opioids that's going on, and there's a huge epidemic of opioids in the country, uh, always remember the various problems you've got with opioids. Um, and and I, the reason I bring it up is because I've got another case where somebody uh, gave him probably a little too much Narcan early on, although I'm not sure you can do that. The patient up, around, angry, the nurse who went into the room signs the patient out. And, of course, what does he do, Rick? Where do they find him? Oh, he went back to sleep? 
They found him. He barged out of the emergency department. Of course, now they found him in a snowbank, letting you know what part of the country this was in. Uh, they found him in a snowbank, and of course, he had died uh, when he when he got out, uh, and the uh, opioid came back upon him. Uh, uh, Narcan only lasts for a certain amount of time, and uh, now they're back on this hospital. Um, uh, for uh, for prematurely discharging the patient. Well, you know, that comes up, I think, about how long you need to observe somebody after you wake them up with this stuff. And um, I think some people wind up sticking around a, a long, long time. And I think that um, a lot of that is kind of not all of that scientifically based. I think some of these people who go out shoot up again and that might be the problem, not the fact that uh, you sent them out five minutes after you woke them up with Narcan. Unfortunately, this patient started walking away from the hospital, which was sort of out in the country, and at, at where the uh, where the hospital's driveway uh, turned onto the main highway. That's where they found him. I'm I'm not sure he shot up again. He didn't get very far, did he? No, I I just hope my young colleagues don't realize how uh, they need to realize how quickly this goes up and down. Third hey, wait point. A Hold on a second, there, uh, Chief. I'm going to play you something. This trainer contains no needle or drug. This is a. Um, you are ready to use pull off red safety guard. If What's not that? Ready to use, replace the outer case. To inject, place black end against outer thigh, then press <laughs> firmly and hold in place for five seconds. This is the EVO, EVZO, EVZO trainer. This is the um, injector that uh, will put Narcan into you for about $600. $600 is, is what I believe to be the uh, uh, estimated price of this sucker. Um, I think that, you know... <laughs> Do you realize I, we, we, buy, we buy Narcan at the hospital for essentially a buck, less than a buck a shot, Rick? Well, now, I you mean, know, pharmacists here in California, as of January 1st, can dispense uh, Narcan. So I guess the idea is that they would give them some syringes and some... Um, uh, needles. A bottle uh, of this stuff rather than... You know, this ridiculous trainer crap. But these people are very good at knowing how to inject drugs where they don't need to be instructed on how to do this. I guess this is for the family members uh, to help you uh, wake up somebody. God, that's a fortune. That's an absolute fortune. Okay, number three. Uh, and this has to do with a current lawsuit I'm dealing with. When you think it's their daughter, uh, it's their wife or girlfriend or somebody else you do have to know who you're speaking to in the department. And I've made every mistake possible over the years. I've said, I've said things that are just wrong. So now I use the phrase, what's your relationship to the patient? I've got a case going on right now, and it had to do with who the emergency department got information from because according to the family, it, it, it was from the girlfriend. He thought it was the wife. She did not get, he did not get all the information on this patient's medical problems. And that's one of the nituses of this lawsuit is should he have been aware of these other medical problems? So uh, uh, define who you're talking to 
and and write it down someplace because there's no way in hell in five years you're going to remember who it was who gave you the information. No, I think that's very good advice. I think that when uh, the the wife or or the or the mother or the aunt or the grandmother is the one who's giving the information that it really ought it's just a it's just a second to, to indicate that you know the source of the this this additional information if it's not from the patient I think it's a great idea I also think it's a great idea to write down the name of the translator who's uh, translating for you whether it be a family member or whether it be a uh, official interpreter from the hospital. And, uh, you know, that's another conversation, fam- family members versus hospital translators. But the fact of the matter is is that if you feel comfortable that a family member is doing this well, I would put down, you know, that who the translator was as the, you know, the daughter, the sister, the whatever relationship it was to the patient. All right. Uh, idea number four, simple idea number four, Five milligrams of Haldol is almost never enough. Uh, why do I bring this up? Well, first of all, when you're about to give lots of Haldol, I know what's running through your mind. Is it too too late to switch to dermatology? Let me answer that for you. Yes, it's too late to switch to dermatology. Uh, so just uh, shut up and get it done. But uh, a lot of drugs come with a suggested dose on them. All of us have had to give more and more and more, and that's normal and reasonable. What you have to put down is what the patient is like at this moment in time. Uh, There is no single dose which is applicable to all patients, and I don't care if you start out with five, but when they're uh, busting the place up, hurting your staff, that sort of thing, occasionally uh, we have to use an extra Haldol blow dart and you need to document that against the behavior of the patient. At this moment in time, they constitute a threat to self or others. They're getting more medication. All right. Is that is that the list for 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 today? That's for today, and I hope you enjoyed that. I mean, I I think sometimes there are truisms and realisms in medicine which we don't talk about <laughs> a lot. Um, you know, another day has passed for me, Rick, when I did not use my calculus. Um, it's not that I shouldn't have taken it at some point in time, but uh, you know what? There's a lot of practical things which are worthwhile and worth talking about. Hey, listen, you got any cases? I got all kinds of cases. Well, give us your best shot here because uh, we have our surprise coming up for Amo. All right. Okay. <clears throat> I've got some stuff here that's just it, it it's just great. Um, this one, case number one, comes to us uh, from actually this is a not a true emergency medicine case. It's in the hospital, however, and it has to do with the transfer of a patient. It had went from ICU to the general floor following an aortic aneurysm surgery. Well, there was no written order by the doctor to restrain the patient. The patient, during the transfer from one location to the other, pulled himself up, got up, jumped over the side rail, and uh, went on to a subdural hematoma. Um, Now, understand 
The family is not happy about this. Here's the fight. Here's the question, which you and I are involved with every day. Do you have to write an order for restraint, or should it be considered a part of the usual and customary nursing duty that they restrain a patient who's obviously still under, still heavily medicated, uh, and that the doctor shouldn't have to do that in this particular case? Uh, it went eight hundred thousand bucks against the doctors and the hospital. Uh, they couldn't decide exactly who got what, but uh, eight hundred thousand bucks got exchanged in this situation. What do you think? So the issue here is that there should have been a pre-existing restraint order or a PRN restraint order. You do need to have orders regarding the restraining people. That I don't think that. Uh, you can certainly retroactively uh, have those orders placed if the patient is going bonkers and the nurse feels that they need to take some immediate action uh, to restrain a patient, whether that be uh, mechanically or otherwise. But the fact of the matter is, is that for the patient's sake, action needs to be taken. And I do think that it's probably prudent if you anticipate any uh, thing like that, that you would write something in advance. But certainly after the fact, you need to kind of, I think, have in the chart that you uh, have supported this initiative uh, that was taken to protect the patient. You know, I, I can't believe that the number of times we transfer patients, it isn't essentially ingrained into everyone, but uh, it's interesting in this case, they were not restrained. Case number two, this is a pediatrics case, but it could be an emergency medicine case, and it's an interesting case. This is failure to recognize the possibility of erythiosis. Who? Uh, erythiosis. That's the one in a sick toddler with a history of tick bite two weeks earlier. Now, here's the question, Rick. If someone came into me and said, my kid had a tick bite uh, two weeks earlier and now is real sick, I guess I'd call somebody impedes infectious disease. Here's the, here's the reason this thing went on. And by the way, it's a $5 million gross verdict in a state that doesn't give out money very much, the state of Tennessee. And what they said was there's a fight as to who said what. Family says we told them they had a tick bite. Father says I showed them the tick bite. They don't have anything on the record and there's nothing, and by the way, it wasn't just one visit. There was a series of visits. Uh, and, and the discussion of the tick bite is not found on any of the visits. So here we have a he said, she said, um, and I don't know what, you see, you'd like to think that you can come up with a simple way of solving all these problems. I don't know what you do in this case. Dad says we told them. Hospital says we didn't. Because, you know, even you and I would, if they said the kid had a tick bite, might ask somebody, hey, what can that look like in a kid this age? Well, I've right? never diagnosed ehrlichiosis, no less uh, learned how to say it properly. But I think the matter at hand is if a kid is ill, we don't see very many ill kids anymore, you know. If a we kid don't. is ill and is getting progressively worse ill, uh, that independent of whether you heard the story about the tick bite or not, 
You can't keep sending them home and having them come back and come backing worse and those kinds of things. And independent of what about the tick bite or not, you need to take action to try to, you know, sick kids are getting worse, need to come into the hospital. And the fact of the matter is, is that 99.99% of emergency physicians would not know how to make the diagnosis of ehrlichiosis. Yes, if you got a history of a tick bite and the kid's doing is sick, somebody's going to go to the books and look it up, but it's not going to come out of anybody's head. Yeah, well, no, it's not going to come out of anybody's head, but it's interesting in this case, it's the fight. No, they didn't tell me. Yes, we told them. And it's it, it, somebody I wish had written that thing down because this is a big case. Now, earlier in the recording, that we noticed that uh, Dr. Matu said he likes it when we review papers, and he gave us a list. Well, uh, Amo, here's a uh, surprise for you. I have the author of the paper, number one paper that you ranked, The Effect of Malpractice Reformer in Emergency Department Care, Dr. Dan Waxman, on the Skype line, along with Dr. Henry. And uh, we're going to review this paper, which... I did say it was probably the most important paper of the year, but that would mean it was only about in the last two weeks. But it is a really, a really important paper. Dr. Waxman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it very much. Uh, thank you very much for asking me, and thank you for the kind words. I, I'm really flattered and honored. Uh, Dr. Waxman is at uh, the Rand Think Tank, where he thinks. That's what they, they do over there. They think. Uh, I'm but he's also... also I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Go ahead. No, uh, he, he's I'm also at UCLA. Yeah. Uh, so he's uh, got his foot in the clinical over uh, across the street because San Rand is where in Santa Monica. We call it the People's Republic of Santa Monica for those of us who live in California. Um, but in any case, he is the lead author on this paper. There are five authors. One of them is Art Kellerman, who um, Greg and I both know. Greg, welcome. You're welcome to say something here every once yeah, in a while. Yeah, no. I mean, Kellerman is obviously a, a friend, uh, and uh, he and I have uh, worked a long time uh, on various things together. Um, I, I'm, I can't wait to get this uh, paper discussed because we have been predicting this, Rick, and then Dr. Waxman and his colleagues went out and proved exactly what we predicted. Exactly. So I, uh, I, but what he did was he validated you and I over the last yeah. five years when we said what was going to happen. I find myself like Karnak the Magnificent because I predicted <laughs> this, and but we need it in, in print. And um, before we get started, Dan, uh, are you familiar with the study that looked at um, Medicare patients in Texas seven years after the enactment of their malpractice reform? Uh, we, uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I believe there were a couple of papers that have looked at that, but yeah, I believe that they're um, probably, um, I'd have to go back to the paper, but, but yes, I reviewed everything that... Because um, uh, I that. could not find for the life of me that, that reference, but I'm absolutely positive there was a study, but yeah. it, was about, it was about medicine in general, about uh, whether Texas, um, their malpractice reform re resulted in any kind of decrease in the um, ordering or charges for Medicare patients. Um, if I could, uh, and, and, and basically it said no, it didn't. But let's look at another aspect of emergency uh, of care, and we're talking about specifically emergency care. This paper was in the New England Journal back in October, 
If you have access, if any of you have access to this paper, please, please, please get it. It's really important that this become a matter of conversation at your ER committee meetings. Um, and particularly those of you who train emergency physicians, you've got to know about this paper uh, because hopefully it will change some of your behavior. And with regard to policymakers, it is, it is a really, really important paper because Dan, as you pointed out in the preamble of your paper, which I thought was great, um, you pointed out that some people say that defensive medicine is costing about $210 billion, like in B, uh, a year. Now, obviously, that's an estimate, uh, and, and, and I'm sure it's subject to some uh, challenge, but that's a big number no matter, no matter how you carve it. And the assumption was is, is that a lot of that defensive medicine um, would go away if there was substantial malpractice reform. So what you nicely did, and I'm just going to set it up a little bit, is that you looked at three states where they have had extensive malpractice reform. And in fact, in your paper, you have a very nice chart of uh, what each state did. And um, we had been following in Risk Management Monthly, um, particularly Texas, uh, which probably I think has the most radical of the malpractice reforms. I think you have to be an axe murderer in Texas to lose a case of malpractice. And you compare Texas with South Carolina and Georgia, which all enacted between 2003 and 2005 major malpractice reform, specifically focusing on, in some cases, emergency medicine and basically raising the bar in terms of what you had to show. Instead of uh, willful and wanton negligence, you went to gross negligence, which is basically... Uh -huh. Not, not quite. Let me, not quite. Let me, let me explain that. So, so basically, um, the three. The, uh, let me just jump in. Sorry to interrupt, but um, basically, what we did was there were three states. So, this actually started. You mentioned Art Kellerman. Um, he actually um, came up with. Uh, uh, I hate to admit it, but he came up with the idea of looking at this initially because uh, South Carolina. The first one that I was aware of was South Carolina that changed its malpractice standard from ordinary negligence to gross negligence, which is a big change. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that uh, to be found, uh, you know, for a plaintiff to prove gross negligence, you basically needed to know that uh, a physician would need to know that what he was doing um, uh, was likely, like more likely than not, to cause serious harm and then to go ahead and do it anyway. I mean, mm -hmm. in legal right. circles, it's, so, so basically, so the first state we looked at was in Georgia. So Georgia, Texas, and South Carolina all changed their malpractice standard uh, from ordinary negligence to gross negligence. Essentially, the, Texas calls it willful and wanton negligence, but it is agreed upon that uh, there doesn't seem to be any dispute that they're essentially the same standards. Right. That's specifically for emergency department care. So what we did was we compared for each of those three states that passed um, uh, the reform, and uh, one of them was in 2003, the other two were in 2005. We compared, um, you know, and we got patient-level records, so about 4 million uh, records of Medicare patients, and compared basically the change over time in the practice of emergency medicine, looking at, at um, several outcomes before 
and after the reform periods and used, compared the change over time between each of the states that passed a reform and the states that were geographically surrounding those states as controls. Um, and, uh, and, you know, basically, so we looked at, we based the outcomes that we looked at, at the, the outcome, the research outcomes were based upon actually what emergency physicians set themselves in a, in a, in a few surveys have said they do, mm-hmm. uh, they, they do defensively. So they said basically um, when we, um, you know, that yes, uh, so, uh, you know, this is like well um, highly cited studies where, where emergency physicians and all other kinds of physicians who are asked say, yes, we practice defensively. What do you do defensively? Um, I, uh, I uh, admit patients to the hospital. I order um, CT or MRI scans that aren't otherwise necessary. Um, and I do lots of other tests. So basically we looked at those, um, you know, uh, as best we could at those outcomes. We looked at for each each patient, again, this is patient-level data, and we adjusted for all sorts of patient characteristics. We looked at um, uh, how likely was it that a, a patient would be admitted to the hospital before or after reform as compared to the surrounding states. How likely was it that a patient with given characteristics would receive a CT scan during the emergency department visit? And what were the total charges for the emergency department visit? Um, and uh, yeah, so that was the design of the study. Sorry, that was kind of long-winded. But, uh, and uh, the outcome was? The outcome was that uh, when you put it all together, that essentially there was no, that you could, uh, there, there was no measurable effect um, in aggregate um, on those outcomes, uh, you know, that could be attributable to malpractice reform. That, that essentially, as, as best as we could tell, um, <coughs> Uh, emergency physicians followed this in those states and the reform states followed the same trends over time. So everybody ordered more CT scans over time. Everybody charged more over time, you know, billed more for their visits over time. Uh, but there was no effect um, between the, uh, the those three states that passed reform and our control states. I want to play devil's advocate here for just a minute, <clears throat> Dan, and, and ask this question. Yeah. If, if, what you're talking about is the behavior of physicians who have 30 and 40 year practice histories. Is it that we just measured this too soon? Um, I, I mean, once people know that they're not going to get sued or it's less likely they're going to get sued, there will be some time break there in an actual change in their patterns of behavior. Is, is there a possibility here that if we looked at year 10 or year 20, we would have a different finding because you essentially looked at year five or seven, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what do you think that would do? Or is there, is there any, any reason for us to suspect that it's going to get better? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, you know, a, a very thoughtful question and a legitimate, um, you know, a legitimate um, question. Um, I can say that, uh, so I can't answer, you know, with data that I don't have. So it's only been five, five years for two of the states, and set, or the data that I had was only went out that far. Uh, can't prove it. Um, we saw no trend towards, you know, five, seven years is, is still, you know, it's a reasonable amount of time. We saw no trend, um, you know, suggesting it was heading in that direction. That, um, so it's, it's reason, you know, yeah, you could say maybe the current generation of doctors just needs to die off. 
uh, <laughs> and new enlightened people who are trained in this environment uh, will, uh, you know, will behave differently. It's possible. We saw no trend to that effect. And furthermore, if you look at the policy relevant question, you know, what can we expect? Is this um, is malpractice reform the ticket? to reducing unnecessary, you know, truly wasteful care. So, you know, wasteful care being defined as care that is, uh, you know, of no value to patients. So if the question is, um, hey, if, if, if we pass, uh, if, if a state passes uh, malpractice reform, can they expect to um, reap benefits in terms of reducing waste? Then I think you could argue that five, seven years is kind of a policy, that's the time frame over which policymakers think. Uh, so if something might happen in a, you know, 20 years, yeah, that's interesting, but it's hard to kind of make policy on that basis. Well, there's no question that, that as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. And we are, we are taking people out of the medical schools. First of all, the medical schools where they pop out of tend to be test heavy. They tend to be intensive in working up patients even at the end of life, so to speak. So we're turning out a product. The, the young doctors coming out of medical school who've never had to deal with malpractice anyway, the imprinting we're giving them is of, of overdue, overtest, overcharge, so to speak. And uh, it seems to me that the real question is, how do we get at that imprinting problem um, as, as opposed to just the malpractice problem, we, we, we hear this rant out of doctors all the time. And there's nobody more conservative on these issues than I am. But I'm tired of hearing this, oh, if you could only take care of the lawyers, we wouldn't do all this stuff. And basically what you're saying is no proof, there's no evidence that getting the lawyers off their back uh, uh, increases better, it makes better care for the patients uh, or decrease cost. Is that a fair summary? Uh, yeah. Well, we didn't. We didn't. You know, to be fair, we didn't study better care for patients. We didn't look at outcomes. Um, but I would say more strongly than there's no proof. I would say there is good proof that in you know that um, you know there is there is good proof to the contrary that uh, that by itself changing malpractice laws will not uh, change you know behavior in, in any. Um, meaningful way. Let me point out, uh, just to be you know completely transparent, there is one other argument um, that I think people make, which is legitimate, but I don't think would change the answer, and that is that we studied Medicare patients, right? This was a Medicare population, primarily people uh, 65 and over. And some people have said to me, uh, "Well, you know, of course there was no change among a Medicare population because everybody does everything." Um, for Medicare patients, if it's the it's the forty year old people with chest pain, that's who I do my defensive medicine on, um, and I can't prove that because I don't. I only had Medicare data. Um, I, I can tell you that it's my uh, strong suspicion there are, there are almost no cases where um, behavior in the Medicare population differs so much from any other population. But I'm just throwing it out there as as you know, kind of full disclosure in terms of the intelligent arguments people have made, um, uh, you know, that counter our findings. Yeah. So this is very historic. This basically says that all this chest beating about, well, we would change our practice if we could, if we were uh, absolved for, from being sued, basically uh, is, is, is a smokescreen. That is not true. And the fact of the matter is, is that when I specifically look at Texas, 
And you look at some of the, you refer to them, Dan, in your paper, as legal blogs and commentaries um, have viewed the standards in these three states as providing virtual immunity to emergency physicians, virtual immunity. Because it was not only the, steady, uh, the, the, what, the, the change from negligence to gross negligence, but Texas had a $250,000 cap on pain and suffering. They, have all, uh, they, they changed the constitution of the state of Texas to pass this thing. These other two states also have caps, $350,000 caps as well, so that if you want to take a look at all the, all the modalities that have been shown to, you know, to be put on the docket for malpractice reform, these states have done all of it, and there's been no change. Um, and we'll never get to the point where an emergency physician can never be sued. So I think there are concern, there's a concern as well, maybe these doctors in these states really don't know that they have, in fact, virtual immunity. Uh, maybe the word has not gotten out. That Maybe the terminology has not been so strongly stated. The fact is that you have virtual immunity. And unfortunately, there, you were not able to compare uh, the cases with regards to specifically malpractice against uh, emergency physicians in these states uh, to say whether that had anything to, uh, with that shown to go down, although malpractice in general in the state of Texas went down 60%, payments went down 70%, and there was a flood of doctors into those states to become licensed to practice in, their, in them because of these of these changes but whether rick whether it's perception or not the physicians do view it as a safer place to practice so for the medical community in texas they found it a more enjoyable or more desirable place to be than certain other states so that is a benefit uh although it's not the benefit you and i are looking for it is still a benefit for the state of uh, Texas or Georgia or Florida. It, it makes them more appealing as places to practice medicine. You would have to agree with that. Uh, largely because their malpractice insurance rates have gone down drastically, but not apparently because their fear of being sued has been proportionately decreased. Because I think personally that if a physician has in the back of his head that there is still the possibility of being sued, that um, that is that is bothersome to them because they know how devastating suits can be in terms of their personal life and their stress and all of these other kinds of things. But this paper is extraordinary because it, you know, Dan, your methodology was is as good as it can be, I think, and basically you've base hit the nail right on the head that you can try to make all of these changes you want, they are not going to change our practice. And, and I think one of the reasons that um, they may not is what you're referring to, Greg. I mean, I, you know, I'm prejudiced, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on record in saying I think that maybe a lot of the faculty that are training young doctors are risk-averse. I think universities provide a lot of backup for people so that if they get into any trouble, there's always some specialist that you can call right down from the floor. Um, that, that doesn't happen in a lot of community hospitals. And so um, I think we're changed. And, you know, there's all of this EHR where they're having order sets, 
order sets basically are going to do everything. We're going to order everything because they're you know you come up a committee came up with the order set. Well, I'll I'll take the uh, take the stand that there are only three things that influence human behavior on a predictable basis: sex, meaning pleasure, money, and violence. What we've dealt with here. Uh, is part of the violence against us personally, the lawsuit aspect. But until you start affecting the money, i.e., those physicians who produce uh, good care for less money are rewarded. If, for example, you're the physician who orders two uh, CT scans a shift on headache patients as opposed to 10 and are properly rewarded for that, uh, then I think we're going to see behavioral change. You realize, Rick, the number most people use is the average emergency doc orders about 10 times his salary in tests each year. If a doc gets $300,000 a year, he probably in that year will order $3 million worth of studies. The guy who orders a lot less CTs, CBCs, uh, PTs, PTTs, uh, is going to be of more benefit to the system. I don't think we found a way yet to capping people or saying this is how much money you've got to see this many patients. And until we do that, I'm not sure there's any uh, desire on anyone's part to actually bill less, lower codes, less money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I agree completely that essentially it's the path of least resistance to, you know, there, there are lots of reasons to, that people, uh, you know, order more uh, rather than less. One of them is financial sometimes, but I think you'd see the same thing in, in you know, for a doctor who works uh, uh, at Kaiser where the mm -hmm. incentives are, are, are backwards. I, I think that um, there are, you know, a lot of, you know, um, it's our way of thinking is ingrained uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, and you could, you know... Um, so uh, not to cast aspersions. I mean, I think some of it comes from a good place. We really don't want to do wrong by our patients. People are very, you know, cautious. Uh, and when that, when caution is apparently free to the person who's making the decision, you know, you tend to, it tends to manifest in doing more rather than doing less. less. You know, if, if you look at the, the headache population of Singapore, uh, and Singapore probably has the best male longevity, female longevity, and infant mortality in the world for about a quarter of what it costs here in the United States, you will notice that they order a fifth or a sixth as many CT scans on headache patients. There's got to be something we can take from them to reproduce that sort of cost effectiveness. I mean, there's not, you know, I've been to Singapore. There's not a lot of dead people laying around on the streets who, <laughs> who, who everybody missed. Um, and, and it's how we're going to move back to some sort of reasonableness. You know, the, the, the Second World War changed everything in the country. When, when all of us, when, at least when Rick and I were, were old guys now, we're doing our best, by the way, Dr. Waxman, to uh, have the old docs drop dead and get out of the way. Uh, we're working on it. Uh, but we were spending about 3.2% of the gross national product on health, and this year it's passed into the 20% range uh, without, without getting a lot, a lot of bang for the buck. And, uh, I, you know, I'm sort of beside myself as what we're going to do here to put this thing back under control. 
You know, Dr. Waxman, I love the phrase that you came up with in um, your paper that says, we work, emergency physicians work in an, in an information-poor, high-risk, technology-risk environment. That technology is just sitting there waiting for that box to be checked. Um, it's much more difficult for a family physician to order a MRI from his office and then have the person go down to the wherever it's going to happen. We, man, we check that box. They're out of there. They're getting that, they're getting that test. It's so easy for us to do those things here in, uh, in the U.S. Um, I like to say that I was optimistic about how long this is going to take to fix um, because I do think it needs to be fixed. And I think 100%, Greg, that you're right. It needs to be economically driven. The accountable care organizations are, are going to claim that that's how they're going to make money is by they're going to spend less to take care of their population of patients. That's kind of the same old HMO kind of view of things is we'll make money by, by spending less. Well, it's, just, it's raising its head under the accountable care uh, um, uh, concept. But the fact of the matter is, is we have never been trained to order less. That was not. That was never one of the things that we. And do we have doctors who are going to be able to lead us uh, down the path of ordering less? Um, and are we going to be willing to follow? I think it's yeah, really, really tough. I'll lead you down the path, Rick, but I, I think I'm about ready to drop dead, so I, I can't lead for very long. <laughs> Uh, the, there, there is a there is a bottom line to this, and I think it is a cultural question of what the role of medicine or healthcare is. If you look in the United States, we do have states where it's it costs you one third as less uh, for Medicare patients uh, than it is in other states. Uh, they compare the states of North and South Dakota with Florida. It takes three and a half times more money to see an old person in Florida as it does in those states. And the actual life expectancy in South Dakota and North Dakota is longer. I mean, we're going to have to ask some fundamental questions about this because, because uh, the Canadians were smart enough to let every province work this out themselves. And, uh, you know, at some point in time, people in South Dakota are going to get tired of subfunding New York and Florida on all their healthcare expenses. Yeah, that the uh, the differences in the country are pretty remarkable. Uh, and but, by the way, you can look them up in the Dartmouth Atlas. I, yeah, well, I think I, I think for a physician in this day and age to not know about the Dartmouth Atlas and have looked at this, you can bring it up online, and you can look and see in 469 healthcare regions of the United States what it costs. And, and, and to have a three times or three and a half times difference uh, between Minneapolis and, and uh, Miami, Florida, makes no bloody sense. Well, I think that um, the, I think we've kind of gotten the key points out of this paper. And, I want, I'm, and I'm really glad I've had the opportunity to speak with you, Dr. Waxman, and get the word out. To our colleagues, not only emergency physicians, but the, you know, this applies to primary care physicians and internists uh, as well. I think that that extrapolation, even though it's probably you know not justified by the work in your paper, is 
justified by the paper that was done seven years ago in 2010, looking at Medicare patients, finding that Texas, in fact, spent a little bit more than the national average on Medicare patients than, um, than the rest of the states, despite the fact that for seven years it had these substantial malpractice reforms. So I don't see anything good out of coming out of this in terms of, well, we're just going to keep on doing everything we're going to do now until you guys fix this malpractice thing. That's just not going to happen. We're not going to be New Zealand. We're not going to have a no-fault system. And um, if we are having virtual immunity now in these three states and acting just as we did before, you know, where's the hope? Yeah, okay. where, where, where's the advantage to the patients of the United States if it's not giving them some some decreased cost? And that's not happening at this point in time. Dr. Waxman, thanks so much for um, being with us. Any final words? Uh, no, Sam, I mean, I just want to thank you very much. You're very, very kind, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to you. Uh, thank you. I think your paper is uh, was extraordinary, extraordinary paper. Greg, thanks for... Uh, um, being on this as well. Okay, Amo, you asked for it, you got it. Great interview yeah. with uh, Dr. Dan Waxman. Okay, we yeah. got wine of the month coming up there, Chief. Go to it. All right, let's do this thing. First of all, on New Year's Eve, I had my family, my adult side of the family, uh, no grandchildren, out to dinner. I got turned on to a Sonoma Cutra, C U T R E R, Sonoma Valley. And it was uh, just terrific. I, I uh, had heard good things about this, but uh, let me put in a word that uh, this stuff is great. Now, since we're on Sonoma, let's talk about some recent ratings. I know that, the, that those of you who are futzy are going to say, oh, you didn't mention that word, did you? Yeah, Gallo. Gallo Signature Series, the 2012 Zinfandel is absolutely killer, absolutely killer, and it's like 30 bucks a bottle. I, I mean, come on. For those of you who think that gallo is some sort of uh, nasty word and you won't ever say it, you know, get over it because uh, they've got some great stuff. Number two, this will make Diane Bucata very happy. La Crema has come up in the ratings again. It's gone up another spot, Rick. That's her favorite. Uh, I know it's her favorite. And the uh, 2012 Chardonnay Nine Barrel, uh, which is from their Russian River uh, uh, vineyards, is, is again, dynamite. Uh, and uh, who's the largest purchaser of that in the country, Rick? Probably. Costco. Costco buys more wine from La Crocrema than anybody else, and it's just fantastic. The last one I want to talk about and uh, again, people sometimes poo-poo and this, that, and that, uh, some of the major names. But Rodney Strong Vineyards has a Sauvignon Blanc that they've just released. This is the 2013 Sauvignon Blanc Charlotte's Home Estate Vineyards. Uh, it's 17 bucks a bottle. I tasted this stuff. It'll blow you away. 17 bucks a bottle. And next to it, we had some, you know, some sort of hoity-toity $72 uh, a bottle of uh, French wines. I'd rather drink 
the Rodney Strong from Sonoma County, California. So there you go. There's some suggestions. Hey, listen, speaking of uh, Sonoma, um, have you been able to get anything out of the uh, French laundry cellar uh, to drink? I have not. <laughs> uh, they, they are inviting me up to uh, taste their stuff. but Well, uh, they, there's nothing to invite anymore. Did you hear about the $300,000 wine robbery that they had? <clears throat> no, I didn't hear about yes, that. They, yep, uh, they basically were sh- shutting down for a month to uh, remodel the restaurant, and somebody this is pried into the into the door and then pried into the wine cellar. They they forgot to turn the alarm on, and somebody relieved them of three hundred thousand dollars worth of wine. Ooh. Well, in case that person wants my phone yeah, number, exactly. I'll, uh, I'll I'll let them know. By the way, do you realize, Rick, that as of today, as of noon today, Caesars Entertainment filed for bankruptcy? Yep. Where where are we going to put on our shows in Las Vegas? Well, you know, I've been kind of following that little uh, a bit. That's uh, a part of a very, very complex uh, transaction where they formed a real estate company versus uh, this and that kind of company. And there's a lot of their... uh, uh, there are bondholders that are really upset about the way they, they, they're pulling this off. So, yeah. But, yes, those are the hotels that we use for our, our meetings. I think they're still going to be there. I don't think they're going to be shutting down Caesars anytime soon. All right. Well, listen, uh, it's, uh, we, we've run our course here. So uh, this is Greg Henry. Greg Picotta. Yeah, saying goodbye for the uh, January 2015 issue. Bye-bye.